0: Welcome to another episode of The Intellectuals. Our guest today is retired Air Force Colonel Tracy Meck. And I think what makes her even more important in today's scheme of things is the fact that she's also vice president for digital media at Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services, STARS. Uh, Now, before I introduce Tracy, Colonel Meck, I want to first thank uh, our sponsor, uh, CD Media, Todd Wood, for graciously hosting this platform and our producer for today's program, retired Navy Captain Brent Ramsey. I'm Ron Scott, your host, and it's an honor for me to uh, to participate in these interviews with great Americans. Colonel Mech is an Air Force Academy graduate, class of 1987. She's the author of a very important book that I highly encourage our viewers to purchase and read. And the title is see you along the way, reflections of a veteran hiking the Camino de Santiago. Yep. See you along the way, reflections of a veteran hiking the Camino de Santiago. It's just packed with a lot of meaning, a lot of reflection
1: yes it
0: is yeah <laughs> uh, and and i'm i we want to spend a little time about that book and what led up to it and and your experiences but for our viewers i think it's important for them to realize that you had a, a career in the united states air force your assignments in security forces which for the air force is very much like being a, a, an army soldier or a Marine infantryman, they provided security for installations and whatever. And for most people in the Air Force are probably the closest to being in harm's way. Even our fighter pilots and bomber pilots or whatever, they did things from a a great distance, but our security forces in the United States Air Force were right there on the front lines. Uh, Colonel Mech has served in Afghanistan and we want to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, with your experience there she also served in Djibouti in the Horn of Africa Comiso air station in Italy Perinserlic air station in Turkey she spent time at Mildenhall in the United Kingdom and I'm familiar with that I spent time at Mildenhall in my C-130 days she's been in Honduras But I I think mostly from my perspective and my experience in combat was her experience as a commander of provisional reconstruction team, Gardez, forward operating base Gardez in Afghanistan. She spent time at the Pentagon. And I might point out that uh, it wasn't just some action officer position. She was actually in the office of the secretary of defense working Personnel and readiness issues with the Department of State's Foreign Service Institute and other things. So, Mech, I have to tell you, you, your experience in the Air Force was not mundane. <laughs> it was <laughs> right there at the tip of the spear and at the highest levels of our government in the Pentagon. Uh, she also spent time uh, in the training and advising mission, Ministry of Interior, Baghdad, Iraq. So, Colonel Mech, you are definitely a seasoned veteran of our armed forces. So with that as an introduction, I would like uh, to really get into some important matters here. So my first question to you is, what interested you in a military career and the Air Force in particular?
1: Well, growing up, I was fascinated with space, believe it or not. Uh, And like many young people, I aspired to be an astronaut. I love the book, The Right Stuff, you know, Star Trek and that type of a thing. Uh, So really being an astronaut was my goal. And I read the book, The Right Stuff, and decided the best way to do that would be a military officer, become a pilot, a test pilot, and then an astronaut. That seemed to be the, the, the way that you got there. At the time, so the Air Force Academy became um, my goal. And, but you know, what came easy in high school, like physics and chemistry, (laughs) didn't do so well in those types of things at the academy. Uh, So I would seem to be more interested in political science and legal studies. You know, if I had to do the two different uh, homework in in one night, uh, my motivation was actually for. Uh, the the legal or the political science. Um, so I got better grades there and I decided that maybe, maybe I wasn't gonna make it as an astronaut if I, if I couldn't get through or at least get, you know, really good grades in physics it, as, a, as a sophomore at the academy. So I switched to political science with a focus on international affairs and national security and ended up being security forces.
0: Okay, well, it obviously prepared you mentally for a lot of the assignments that you found yourself serving in. So given that, uh, and especially in light of what we're experiencing in America today with the division that's based upon diversity and as it relates to uh, racial, gender, and that sort of thing, you were actually in one of the first classes at the Air Force Academy that integrated women into the program. It was all male when I went through, and now it's, you know, it's opened to both genders. Uh, can you share with us your experience, what it was like to get accepted into the Academy, what it was like serving time there? I'm sure that there was a transition with people trying to get used to the new cultural change and, and whatever, so what, what were your thoughts about that?
1: Well, luckily, I wasn't the first class. I'm sure that those trailblazers had it a lot lot worse than my class did. I, I was, uh, I believe it was the eighth class uh, with women in it. So the policies and procedures were well set at the institution. Uh, we did have some lingering issues with attitudes of some of the cadets. Um, In fact, uh, my roommate and I were told point blank by by one that uh, the fact that we were there diminished the prestige of his accomplishments of being there. In other words, Mm. it wasn't such a big deal that he was there if there were women there as well. Um, That young man uh, ended up giving us a, a hard time for several years, and he ended up, graduating with his degree, but he uh, became a staff sergeant instead of an officer because of the way that he treated us. So um, even though that was in some times hard to go through, the institution did come through for us. And I think they did the right thing uh, because if he was gonna be a leader and go out there and lead with females in his troops, in his unit, then you know, he would have had to be a little bit more open to working with them than this young man was.
0: Uh, well, <clears throat> you're being very gracious. Uh, you know, when I, when I think about the experience that you had, you know, I think about the movie Red Tails about the Tuskegee Airmen. And it, it's a great movie about how they served their nation in combat in the European theater and facing racial discrimination but they stuck to their mission and their goals in life because they believed in America as an institution and what it was designed to be, even though they had to endure discrimination, which was unpleasant. So would you kind of characterize your experience the same way you had faith in the institution and the enduring principles and were willing to endure that kind of discrimination?
1: Yes, um, you know, The Air Force pretty much became my entire identity. I loved it, Uh, it gave me purpose. It gave me the opportunity to do things around the world that most people only dream of or watch on the Hollywood movies. You know, I'd go to work one day and come home and turn the TV on and watch the news and they were talking about the issues that I was working on that day. Um, Now they have very seldom got it right, about maybe thirty percent of what they would report on was the truth, and, and sometimes when when they reported on that, we would scratch our head, going, "How did they find out about that?" Uh, but anyway, um, overall, it was a great life. In fact, a lot of people ask me why I never married, and I say, "Well, I, I did. I married the Air Force on twenty-seven May, nineteen eighty-seven, when I graduated <laughs> from the Air Force Academy." Um, And it it was my entire identity. Now, were there people along the way who were jerks? Yes. Were there some people who had a massive anti-female bias? Yes. That was a constant problem. And and those people caused me um, some heartache and anxiety, to say the least. Uh, But when you think about the big picture, is it going to be any different in the civilian world? If you go out into the corporate world, you're going to have have good people, supportive people, teamwork people, and you're going to have jerks. Mm. There's always going to be a bad boss out there, whether you're in the military or in the civilian world. So I didn't blame it on the institution so much as the individuals.
0: Mm. Well, that, that takes tremendous maturity to uh, to be able to uh, recognize it in that fashion. Uh, my, my wife was quick to let people know when they asked how long we had been married, if it was like five years after I'd retired, she'd say, Oh, five years now. Oh, really? Five years? Ron says it's been 35. Well, <laughs> he was, he was married to the air force for the first 30 years. So I can, I, I can identify with what you're saying there, Colonel Meck. Uh, but you know, you said something that I, I think is very powerful and it has to do with who defines a person is that person defined by their context their environment or did they define themselves in relation to that environment and the reason why i say that is uh, in my academic career presenting papers at national conferences i submitted that the concept of transformational leadership was completely misunderstood by the academics at the time. They were making us believe that a transformation leader was one who was able to transform their organization or their work environment. And I, I wanted to submit that that really is such a shallow appreciation for what transformation leadership is And you've been a transformational leader. And what that means is that a, a transformational leader recognizes the environment that they are in a great deal of it that is beyond their control. And they find a way to adapt to that environment in ways that are consistent with their principles, how they define themselves and that sort of thing. And they become a very authentic example for others to follow, to align with and to follow. So it's a little bit more complicated than just going in and transforming an organization. You know, it it starts at the depth of your soul, your very being and how you define yourself. And so I, I really appreciate how you describe that Cormac because that's fundamentally one of the things that we're dealing with today in America. You know, do we let the environment define us or do we understand the environment that we're in and we reach inside ourselves the skills and the talents and the ideas the principles that we have and we live a life based on that so i I, I really wanted to use that to tee up this next question Uh, in your book you speak candidly about the rigors of serving especially in the many overseas assignments that were actually uh, injurious they afflicted injuries to your health, both physically and mentally. So reflecting back on those challenges, what would you tell a young person today who is contemplating a military career? But first, reflect on those injuries and then how it would inspire you to mentor a younger person.
1: Well, I did end up with a a bad back, if you will, because of, uh, you know, as security forces, like you mentioned earlier, were like the Army or the Air Force. That's how I used to. Mm-hmm. kind of talk about it so you'd wear the combat gear you know a flak vest initially later the uh the very heavy ib ibas i think mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway um and of course the belt with all the equipment on it um and then you'd run around we'd have exercises so you, you know you're, you're running around with all that stuff on and and it it takes a toll on the mm-hmm. back so uh, I do have to go to the chiropractor pretty much weekly nowadays, um, and, and it causes a lot of headaches when my my spine is not in alignment. Um, I can get some serious headaches, and that's been going on probably since the early 90s. <laughs> um, so I can't go camping. I don't want to camp because laying on the ground is very, very rough which made the Camino de Santiago the right hike for me to go on because mm-hmm. you stay in hostels and, and that type of thing. You don't, and, and you eat in restaurants and cafes. So you don't have to carry a 35, 40 pound pack on your back with water and food and lodging. Uh, you know, you can 20 pound pack and you're good to go and <laughs> mm-hmm. stay in a bed at night. Uh, so you just find ways to get around that. Um, yeah, other things. Um, that, well, I do have some anxiety issues now after after full combat tours, and I, I hate to say it, but dealing with some jokes <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they, they did cause me some stress over the years. Uh, but that, in a way, because of some of those disabilities, then I, I do get a VA disability for some of it, so I get mm-hmm. VA care, and uh, between that and my retirement, I really don't have to work mm-hmm. now, especially since I'm single and not trying to put a, a child through college or anything mm-hmm. um, so I'm able to I'm free to be what I call a professional volunteer and I just get involved in the issues and movements that I'm passionate about and I can make my own schedule and uh, I'm able to go down to Arizona three t- three months out of the year and stay with my parents, which is awesome. After, you know, 35 years of running around the world and seeing them every couple of years. Um, now I spend three months a year with them and, you know, they're, they're in their 80s now. Mm-hmm. So I find that as an extreme blessing. Um, but uh, I think it was worth it because. OK, so I've got. Some feed issues. I, I got some. Um, uh, they, they called it cold perneo in in uh, Afghanistan because I went to the mountains. But the the wonderful army who processed us for going to Afghanistan for the PRTs uh, told us we were going to the desert, and I told them no, we're not. We're going to the mountains, and they gave us. They didn't give us the proper winter gear, so a lot of us had cold injuries. Mm. <laughs> in the in the end. And in fact, I just had um, had a, a surgery on one of my feet <laughs> last, okay. last week to, to deal with some lingering issues from that. Um, but was it worth it? I, I would say so because I got to do so many interesting, exciting and impactful things. You know, I, I was making a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was contributing. You know, I wasn't just sitting on my couch watching TV or, or going to, you know, work to try and make a buck. You know, there, there was important things going on. And, you know, I might not have been the leader of those important things, but I contributed.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, I did my part. And I I can't imagine having any other type of a life. It, it was just fulfilling. And mm-hmm. so I got a bad back and some bad feet and a little bit of anxiety. Wow. Well, I can deal with that. <laughs>
0: okay. So so it was meaningful, even though there was wear and tear. It uh, was a meaningful experience.
1: Absolutely.
0: So, you know, a lot of our viewers may not really have a, a good understanding of what a provincial reconstruction team is. Now, you, you led one uh, in Afghanistan. Can you explain to our viewers uh, what a PRT actually is?
1: Yes. We had uh, three missions. uh governance capacity building, uh, security, um, and some economic development. So what we would do is work with the governors and the provincial councils, uh, and on down through the districts and even down to the village servers uh, to figure out what they needed to give them hope and in, in a prosperous future for their village and for their families. Uh, So we were building schools and clinics and roads and electrical systems, um, uh, helping them with their irrigation systems for their fields. Uh, So we often talked about how, you know, the kinetic guys that we were co-located with, they they would uh, kill people and break things where we were hugging people and building things. (laughs) And the, the whole idea was, To give them hope um, to give them economic stability and security so that they would not support the terrorists because really prior to that whether they liked what the terrorists were doing or not whether they agreed with the philosophy they were there and they were um, they were going to get you if you didn't support them Mm -hmm. And so people would support them, not because of ideology, but because of fear for themselves and their family. Um, So what we needed to do was give them hope so that they would resist the influences of the Taliban and to build the society. So if you have a good functioning society, then the terrorists can't get a hold, a foothold as
0: easily. Mm -hmm. So what was your sense? Was it appreciated by... The uh, indigenous Afghani's.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Okay.
1: Absolutely. Um, in fact, we we specially made designs on the side of our Humvees and our, our armored vehicles that showed everybody it was our design so that uh, the bad guys knew that we were the PRT.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: And they didn't. Uh, they didn't necessarily ambush us, like. They might have ambushed the others because we, they knew that we were. Uh, we had the support of the people. Um, now, at some point, though, when you do too much for people, they start to take advantage of that. Yeah. And there was some of that going on where they were playing games with us mm-hmm. to try and get us to do more. Uh, one of the big um, uh, stories I like to tell is when we first got there every the time we went out to a village they would say well you know uh, we can't irrigate our crops because our irrigation canals are full of debris from from the winter the snows the rains all this stuff is washed in there and now they're all clogged up and and we can't irrigate our fields so we'd put a project together and hire people to go out and clean up the irrigation ditches so that their fields could get irrigated. And after doing that for several villages, I I looked at my lead interpreter, Shabir, and I said, you know, it's been raining, snowing, melting for eons, (laughs) you know, ever since the world began. What did they do before 2001 when we showed up here? Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, well, they would get together as a community and go out and clean it. And I'd go, well, well, why aren't they doing that now? Because you're going to pay them to do it. Because we didn't do it. We would set up a contract, issue it to a company who would then hire the locals and pay them to do it. Mm. So we were undermining their um, traditional way of doing things. And they were using us, basically. (laughs) (laughs) We were still doing the work. That they were getting what well, we were paying them to do what they used to just do as a part of their community mm-hmm. uh, so we quit doing that and i spread it around to the other prts but the funny thing is a couple of years later when i was on the centcom staff working prt issues and i go back and some guy from the u.s agency for international development stands up and says you know we have to do these irrigation canal cleanings every year why don't we just standardize that in the budget why do we have to request the funds every year and I stood up and I went on a ramp (laughs) I I couldn't believe it you know we had learned that lesson two years ago we had passed it around but now they were back to doing it Um, and this guy was supposed to be a development expert and you know I was like you guys got to be kidding me (laughs) Um, so I think I got off on a little tangent there
0: Oh, no, that, that, that's fine. Uh, but you were there, you worked with the Afghanis. And so you, you got to know them uh, and in terms of developing a relationship, a trusting relationship and that sort of thing was, was a little bit of a challenge uh, because you had a mission and you wanted to be helpful, but it involved trust and cooperation on their part, which leads me to this next question. Having been there, having gotten to know the people from Afghanistan, when the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, what is your view of the impact of this decision on the average Afghani?
1: Most likely, total betrayal, again, and I say again because we we backed out on them once before, um, you know, back in the time when the Russians. After the Russians left and that that allowed the Taliban to take over the country. Then we came in and booted the Taliban out of power and then we left and guess who came back mm. and not only did they come back But they had 80 billion dollars worth of uh, high-speed military equipment to use against the people mm. uh, So I can see uh, in fact, I, I know that there's a lot of betrayal because I'm in contact still with uh, some of the Afghans that worked with us um, and, and their families are still trying to get out and they're trying to you know, get me to help them, but I really don't have any power to do that. And that is, it's just so frustrating to me because I don't know what I can do to help because of the way that the system is set up you know, I ha- I have to say I was this person's in you know uh, supervisor. Well, not if he was four uh levels down or he worked for the contractor that we hired. I probably, you know, you know, I never actually supervised him, so I'm having trouble helping them. <laughs> and they, but they're crying out, you know. Every every other couple of weeks I get an email saying, can you help us? <laughs> And I'm like, I don't know
0: how,
1: <laughs> you know, well, so I, they feel betrayed.
0: Well, academically, you were prepared to deal with that particular assignment with your international affairs, political science, academic training. The question I have for you, Colonel Meck, is when we deal with foreign policy as a nation, should we be doing it on their terms or our terms? Assuming their terms, meet our legal and ethical standards.
1: We definitely need to work their culture into the solution because if we try to impose our vision of how society should be on them, it's not gonna stick because as soon as we leave, they go back to doing it the way they've always done it. Um, And I think that was probably one of the things that, we didn't do so good at, (laughs) Mm. Um, but you know, you said I was well-prepared. I'm not so sure I was. I mean, I studied political science and international affairs, but, you know, I was trying to figure out how to build villages and, (laughs) you know, how to put together development plans, you know, five, 10 year development plans with the provincial councils. Um, And of course we were working with the UN on that, but, I was learning as I was going, and the other agencies worked with us. We had State Department, Agriculture, and USAID on our team, but they didn't really know what they were doing either. I mean, you automatically assumed that because a guy was from the State Department that he was a governance development expert. Now, no. No. No no normal state department people sit in an embassy and write cables (laughs) they are not out there helping governments develop their their government capacity and their government procedures that's Mm. not what the state department does but we declared it their role and then they hired people for 15 months for that role gave them three months of training in, uh, at the Foreign Service Institute and, and one-week field training out in um, Indiana, which I was blessed to be a part of for a couple of years, mm. um, but and then they sent them out to the front lines and put them as the only State Department rep on a PRT and told them to to mentor the governors and provincial government agencies and and build their their government. And you know these guys didn't hardly had any state department experience, let alone telling somebody how to build a government. Um, so in this we had the same problem in in agriculture. I had a my ag guy was was a veterinarian. Well he was expected to to know everything about farming and reforestation and everything else. But he didn't know any of that kind of stuff mm. he was a veterinarian wow. you know? uh and the my USAID, united states agency for international development a very good guy afghan american uh had fought with the mujahideen against uh russian uh and was a banker in denver at the time and he went back uh, as part of USAID. um so he spoke fluent uh af afghan and, and or Pashtu is what we spoke in the area. Um, and he knew the culture and he was a great help for me for that purpose, mm. but he didn't know anything about development. You know? <laughs> you know? uh, so he was doing the best he can. We all learned along the way and did the best that we could. But if we were learning as we went, we were not experts at what we were doing and therefore, I don't think the outcome was what it could have been.
0: Hmm. Well, you know, given your experience you know, and not jousting at windmills, I mean, you were <laughs> dealing with the real world. As you get ready to transition to your experience on that important Northwestern trail in Spain, the book Don Quixote comes to my mind who who read a lot of uh, novels in his earlier life about chivalry and, and whatever. And so given the world's circumstances at the time, he decided to venture out and take on these windmills, which today would probably be considered orthodoxy, things like that. But you you detail in your book about your faith life and the journey you have been on over the years to find your right path would you care to reflect on that journey and what you have learned from it
1: wow (laughs) that's a big one uh so i was born catholic um you know did cdc yeah when catholic uh sunday school all that kind of stuff uh got to the academy uh went almost every day as a freshman, uh, but it got to the point where I was just going through the motions. It didn't, and, and I I didn't really feel like it was meaningful. You know, it was just something you did. You kneeled, you stood, you, the prayers were all the same. It was just a, a ritual. So I kind of backed off um, after my freshman year there. Um, upper class years, I was invited uh, by friends to go to some Protestant Uh, evangelical services downtown. So I did that a few times, but um, never really connected again until I was in Germany. And uh, I was going through a bad boss situation (laughs) and my flight sergeant, my right-hand man, senior NCO that I worked with, uh, kept inviting me to his church, uh, which was a missionary Baptist church Uh, right outside of the gate. And finally, I went to that and um, ended up um, giving my life to Christ uh, on Easter Sunday morning (laughs) in in a service there. Um, And now I had done that type of thing before at a Billy Graham crusade with my sister and a couple of things. But this time it seemed to what I call stick (laughs) because it it became really a, a central part of my life after that. Uh, However, uh, my over dedication to my job uh, kept me from fully participating and growing, I think. Uh, And things like September 11th um, really rocked my faith because, you know, did I believe the way that I believed because I was raised in the Catholic Church and then, you know, later became evangelical and so i've been kind of indoctrinated if you will is that what happened do i believe that because those guys that were flying those planes into the twin towers and into the pentagon they were raised to believe the muslim faith and that's they they use that to justify killing thousands of people and going to their own deaths as what they think is martyrs, but that's the way they were raised. So if I had been born somewhere else, you know, what would my faith been? So is it more this is the truth, or is it this is what I've always been taught? So is it so I had to struggle with that a lot. And luckily, uh, when I was in San Antonio, Looking at headquarters, the local Force security forces um, agency. Um, I went to uh, Maxwell Cabos Church in Oak Hills, mm-hmm. and he, the leader, believe it or not, of the Singles Group was a Pakistani American, somebody uh, who had changed um, changed change from Islam to Christianity, mm-hmm. and so he and I were, had many many sessions where we would sit down and discuss, um, you know, why why he made the change and how that would help me in my faith journey. And then I also, on the trip itself, on the hike, I got to turn again. On the hike, um, I was reading a, um, a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And it was another story of an individual who was raised in Islam, but, and for him, 9-11 was also a a critical time, but in the other direction. That made him question his Islamic faith, because he said, those, you know, I'm on a, I think Islam is the religion of peace, but these people used Islam to kill thousands of people. And, you know, so, you know, is my faith right? And he started debating with um, with Christian friends of his. And while he was trying to prove Islam to them, they were trying to prove Christianity to him. And he ended up converting. And this is a book about that entire journey. Um, but by reading that book on the trail, because I was still having doubts, believe it or not, in 2015 when I, when I was uh, hiking, Reading that book um, and going through the process with him on how he was convinced of the truth of Christianity really helped solidify um, my faith a, a lot stronger. Uh, in, in, in so much that when I got back, because I'm one of the big things about the journey was, you know, now that I'm retired, you know, I, I went from working at the Pentagon and in Djibouti, Africa and Iraq. And now I'm sitting in a cabin on the wood, in the woods on an island um, walking my dog, you know, who, who am I now? And I had tried all sorts of volunteer stuff uh, like the American Legion, um, but I really wasn't finding that new identity. Um, on the trip, I decided that new identity would be a servant of Christ. And so when I came back, I quit the, quit the uh, stressful American Legion thing because I was working with the VA. And if you didn't get PTSD in the combat zone, you would get it by working with the VA when you got back. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> mean, they, It's awful. <clears throat> it's awful. So anyway, um, so I quit that and uh, got, got together with some other veterans at the church and we started the His Veterans Ministry. Um which is fiddling out a little bit right now, but we're still doing the annual Veterans Appreciation Dinners on, on Veterans Day, um, which has a, become a big staple in the community. Uh, and I I continued working with the, his pantry at the church, and now I'm part of the security team at the church. Uh, and and now I'm doing what I'm really passionate about, besides, besides STARS, uh, but from a religious perspective, uh, I lead the local 40 Days for Life campaign, and, and that's a huge, huge commitment for me. But, um, I'm out there trying to stand up for the least among us.
0: Now, 40 Days for Life, what what's the significance of that?
1: 40 Days for Life is a prayerful, peaceful campaign vigil outside of abortion clinics. Uh, there's campaigns in Uh, Over 60 countries around the world, Uh, up to a thousand cities have participated in the past, uh, usually 500, 560 per campaign. There's two 40 day campaigns each year and we try to man the sidewalk outside of the abortion clinics. Um, uh, Well, we do seven to seven. They prefer us to do 24 hours a day, but I'm not too convinced of the safety of that neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, I and and I don't have enough volunteers to man it 24/7 either. But we we have peaceful vigil and prayer out there. We have signs, um, not ugly signs with you know destroyed fetal parts, but things like "Pray to end abortion," "Life is precious," "Adoption is the loving option." You know, th- more positive type signs. We try to educate people that are passing by on the truth of you know life begins at conception, um, and we uh, try to reach out to the clients going in and offer them other resources in the community from pregnancy resource centers, like free ultrasounds, parenting classes, adoption services. Uh, you know uh, they even have a boutique and a maternity home that we can refer them to. Uh, And, believe it or not, we try to reach out to the workers and convince them that they could probably find other medical jobs that was a little more positive and and, um, protected life instead of taking it. So we do that uh, 40 days in the fall and 40 days in the spring.
0: So, Colonel your your time now after retirement from the Air Force seems to be more spiritually aligned, uh, which, you know, I, I think based on my own experience, a lot of times we have to be ready to hear, to see that sort of thing. But it takes life's experiences to prep us, I think, to be ready, which you obviously have been there. And now you're you're reflecting on those experiences and what it means to you from an eternal perspective. And so, you know, when I think about the great division in America today, to me, it's primarily spiritual. We have a secular humanist faction that thinks that man, men and women create our rights and then they expect us to comply and to enforce those rights that they have established as opposed to those of us who swore to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. You know, what does the Constitution mean to us? And it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody in America now, unfortunately. For us, it it means equality, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and recognizing that governments are instituted to protect those rights. but we have another faction that thinks that those rights are created by political elite which now tend to be in my opinion secular humanists that uh, they dismiss the role god plays if they even subscribe to a, a god that there is a, a creator uh, a force greater than any of us uh, even though it inspires in different ways like islam and and other religious practices but don't you think that they're just merely from an intuition perspective that we come to know God from our experiences and and to realize that there is a power a force more powerful than us that kind of expects enduring principles and, and that sort of thing. It's a, it's a very philosophical question.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I, I would say yes. <laughs> okay. Probably want more than a one-word answer. Um, definitely, our experiences um, shape our faith. It can it can make it difficult, you know, when things don't go right. Um, but you know, you mentioned how how we like the Constitution. I, I read an article, or actually it was a, a video on the January Sixes and how they've been treated. And when their houses were raided, they confiscated boxes of pocket constitutions from one of the suspects, if you will, as evidence of his extremism. And, you know, it, that just, told me that there's something wrong in our country when having copies of the Constitution to pass out makes you an uh, anti-American extremist. So where is the truth in that? And to say that that's anti-American when that is the foundation of what America is, they're just, the, and that's what this, uh, the whole CRT, critical race theory, uh, and, and the other wokeism, type things that we're dealing with nowadays, uh, they say one thing, but they're actually the, the complete opposite. You know, they say that we're fascists because because a group of out of control people trespassed on in the you know the capital, but they can riot and kill people and burn down stores um, and be very prejudicial against white people, and that's okay. But we go out there and sing religious songs and have uh, support the blue flags and um, sing "God Bless America," and we're the fascists. You know, it's it's exactly opposite. Right is wrong, wrong is right. You know, all those things that uh, that they said would happen one day and they're starting to happen.
0: Well, which which brings me to my last two questions. Now your book was about the Camino de Santiago experience. Right. For viewers, share with us what Camino de Santiago is.
1: Okay. In English that means the way of Saint James. So Thousand fifteen hundred 1,500 years ago, before there were trains, planes, automobiles, people couldn't get to Jerusalem for a Christian pilgrimage, they would walk from their home front door to um, uh, Santiago because the Apostle James is encrypted under the altar there. So that was the Christian pilgrimage of old. Uh, and the tradition just kept going, even when people started being able to have the capability to go to Jerusalem. Um, And so there's trails all over uh, Europe that all lead to Santiago. The one that I went on, it was the Camino Francis, Uh, because it started in southern France at Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, and then you climb over the Pyrenees into northern Spain, and you go through Pamplona, Leon, um, and that area. There's also a northern route that goes right across the... um, along the shore, the Spanish shore. But this is the most popular one. Um, And some people still do it as a religious pilgrimage. Others do it for the challenge because a 500-mile hike is a challenge. Uh, and I, I'm convinced a lot of them do it for the social aspects because people from all over the world are on the trail, mm. and you meet them, and you get to know people who go about the same distance you do, like to stay in the same types of places you do, and you just keep seeing them over and over and over again. And you, you, um, you have what like, you might call a Camino family mm. by the end. And uh, so uh, it's, it's a very fun and challenging um, journey. But you have a lot of time to reflect because you're walking 10 to 15 miles a day. So in the book, um, that reflection time is used to uh, discuss and reflect my military experiences in my career.
0: Well, I think that's very powerful. Uh, Just the other day I was sharing with my daughters that today we're inundated by all kinds of informational sources, TV, radio, internet, but even as relatively more recent than St. James, uh, the founding of our nation, our framers had books, musical instruments town hall discussions, meetings, they didn't, they didn't have access to what we have. And so in my thinking today, we are swarmed by a lot of noise and it's very difficult for us to identify the signals among that noise. And so to do what you did, 500 mile journey to reflect on your life, meaning of it, whatever, has to have been an incredibly spiritual, uplifting experience. Uh, And so I'm glad you did it and you've written about it. And for our viewers, again, it's see you along the way. Reflections of a veteran hiking the Camino de Santiago. And so uh, I can't tell you how blessed stars stand together against racism and radicalism is to have you as part of its leadership team. so we've mentioned uh, colonel mech is our vice president for digital media which includes in my opinion a world-class newsletter that gets published once or twice a month which is just chock full of all kinds of articles and, and whatever to keep our readers updated on some of the issues that we're dealing with but i'd like to close with this question colonel mech uh, you've been a volunteer with stars from almost the beginning what motivates you to spend so much time with stars and its mission
1: well as i mentioned you know the air force was my life and when i was in the air force it besides the few jokes that we had to deal with it was a family we all looked out after each other uh we'd say we all bleed bdu in other words it didn't matter who you were what you, what your background was what your color was You know, we were all one team and we looked out after each other and we took care of each other. Um, What I started seeing in early 2021 was that that was going away and that politics was getting involved. And, you know, they were going to kick the midshipman out for standing up for his parents who were police officers in LA. And then I heard about CRT being taught at West Point and i said oh i hope this isn't happening at the air force academy because that was you know the foundation of my career and that's where we learned you know how to be a good wingman and take care of each other and be a part of a team you know we would say there is no i in team Mm -hmm. you're there for the unit for the mission you know Uh, and i saw that changing Uh, so i reached out to the aog uh, and they actually put me in, char- in contact with uh, General Bishop. Said we think we have somebody you might who might think like you do. So, uh, and and I started working on the the newsletter a couple of months later for Stars. So, um, I'm just afraid that what I'm seeing is ruining not only the academy, but Ultimately, the military, because these people that are being taught this woke political ideology are then going to be the leaders of our military for the next 20, 30 years. And this could be very dangerous. (laughs) Uh, We need to get back on track. It needs to be apolitical. It it shouldn't matter who's in the White House, what party's in charge. Military is the military. We're supposed to be fighting wars and protecting our nation and we're not supposed to be affected by politics. So I, I just wanna help right the ship.
0: Well, we, we can't thank you enough for the leadership you're providing there, Colonel Meck. Uh, our guest today has been Colonel Tracy Meck, retired Air Force Fulberg Colonel, who spent time overseas in combat zones uh, on the front lines as a security forces commander uh, she's also the author of an outstanding book with the title, See You Along the Way, Reflections of a Veteran Hiking the Camino de Santiago. And we highly recommend that you read it and have a vicarious experience through the uh, the eyes and the experience of uh, Colonel Tracy Mech. So Colonel Meck, uh, how can our viewers learn more about you and your book?
1: Well, obviously the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um in well christian christian book distributors also does it so it's it's pretty easy to find uh you do have to do a search for for at least my name or the exact book or, or it'll end up on page 20 uh, <laughs> of of if you just do a search for like the camino uh, it'll be like on page 20 so uh just put my name in and <clears throat> you should be able to find it um Otherwise, finding out more about me, uh, you can do Google my name. Believe it or not, some stuff still pops up uh, from my time in Afghanistan. <laughs> uh,
0: very good. Okay, so that's uh, Tracy Meck, M-E-C-K. Uh, and I, I, again, I, I thank you, Colonel Meck, for taking the time to, uh, to have this conversation on the intellectuals.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Scott. I really appreciate your time.
0: All right. We'll see you around stars.
1: Okay. Have a good day.
0: Cheers. Bye-bye.